You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we welcome back Sri Lankan socialist and activist Rohini Hensman to talk about her book, Indefensible. Indefensible is an exploration and critique of pseudo-anti-imperialism on the left, a topic that has renewed significance with today's war in Ukraine. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking about indefensible pseudo-anti-imperialism with Rohini Hensman. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to talk about some current events. We are recording this current events section on February 28th. This week's topic is actually sort of in line with our main segment, our discussion with Rohini Hensman about pseudo-anti-imperialism, because today in our current events section, we're going to be talking about the curious case of the late Stephen Cohen, frequent contributor to The Nation magazine, to RT, frequent guest on Fox News, Tucker Carlson. And we're going to be talking about Stephen Cohen's career as an apologist for Russia. The impetus for this discussion today are two pieces that were recently published uh, in February of 2023 in Byline Times by Duncan Campbell. One story is a piece that was commissioned by the Columbia Journalism Review, which comes out of Columbia University and positions itself as the watchdog of U.S. journalism. Several years ago, the Columbia Journalism Review, which positions itself as the watchdog of American journalism, commissioned Duncan Campbell to write an investigative report of the Nation magazine's support of Russian policy, which is unusual among liberals and the left to have that kind of position. So he worked on it for a very long time, completed this investigative report, 6,000 words, uh, in 2019, and then it gets killed. The Columbia Journalism Review refuses to publish it after fact-checking and being cleared, the, the head guy says, no, 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 I want more changes. And then what ha- happens is Duncan Campbell, six months into Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which is to say in August last year, he says, look, this is go- going on too long. We have a, basically an obligation to like explain what's been going on with the nation and how they're basically in collusion with the, the Russian government. And... So he says, publish my piece, and they didn't publish it. So finally, it gets published early February in the Byline Times, and along with that, he published a second piece called Russia and the U.S. Press, the article the CJR didn't publish, the article the Columbia Journalism Review didn't publish, where he gives the backstory. One thing that's just important to, to, to know about this is who is this author, Duncan Campbell. Uh, he's a longtime journalist, and during the 1980s, he had been an editor at The New Statesman, which is kind of like the British version of the nation's, the British kind of comparable a magazine, and he was chair of the company that published uh, the, the New Statesman. And 
He knew the then editor of uh, The Nation, uh, the guy who kind of refounded it back in the late 70s, Victor uh, Navasky. So this guy has known about The Nation and been involved in very similar stuff for a very long time. Uh, You know, a longtime veteran uh, journalist. So to set the stage here, we have Stephen Cohen, who was a Russian scholar writing all these soft on Putin stories in the nation. We have Katrina Vanden Heuvel, who was the editor, publisher, owner of Nation Magazine, and she was married to Stephen Cohen before he died. And then we have Kyle Pope, who's the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review. And Duncan Campbell's piece argues that he thinks there's a conflict of interest between the CJR and the nation. And that this conflict of interest led them to kill the story. In the midst of this writing of the piece by Duncan Campbell, what happens that he does not know at the time, he's not told about this by the Columbia Journalism Review or Katrina Van den Heuvel. There's collusion between the Columbia Journalism Review and the nation. It, it eventually was revealed by Kyle Pope of the Columbia Journalism Review that throughout this time when Duncan Campbell was investigating and writing his report, Kyle Pope revealed that he had been throughout, been involved in an ambitious and lucratively funded partnership between the Columbia Journalism Review and the nation and between himself and Vandenhoof. So clear conflict of interest. Yes, at least he alleges, and I, I, I believe that to be the case. And basically, Vandenhoof and Kyle Pope were given more than $1 million from the Rockefeller family and other foundations uh, to support their climate project. So Duncan Campbell says, look, it's a a worthy venture, but yeah, there's a conflict of interest here, he says, and this was not disclosed to him while he was writing the article. And, you know, he interviewed Vandenhovel, and this was not said either. We'll link to the piece, of course, and you can read all the back and forth that happened between him and the editors, which seemed a little bit, you know, interfering with the content of the article before it was eventually killed. But the thing that stuck out the most to me was that the CJR actually asked him to name his confidential anonymous source within the nation, which is a complete breach of journalistic integrity. Now, Pope has got to know that that journalists don't reveal sources. Journalists go to to prison because they won't reveal their their confidential sources. You couldn't have journalism without confidential sources. So some of these sources were like so shocked and aghast and afraid that Duncan Campbell would even transmit this bizarre request. They said, first of all, no, absolutely, I'm not going to go on the record. But they were so alarmed that they said, remove my quote entirely. I don't even want to be quoted off the record now. I mean, this was, it's just not done. Right. It's very alarming when you, you, you get something like that. Well, as a journalist, you know you're doing a good job if they're trying to kill your story. So let's get to the actual story itself. It's all about Stephen Cohen, the Russian scholar, and his writing for The Nation magazine and how his blatantly like pro-Russia apologetics were so alarming to so many people at The Nation and readers of The Nation. But yet his writing was able to continually and increasingly dominate the pages of The Nation, even when it violated all sorts of journalistic standards of integrity. The piece starts talking about Stephen Cohen's career as a Russia scholar and how there was a certain role for him within the left during the Cold War, uh, defending Russia against, you know, 
Western imperialism. We'll talk about that kind of stuff with uh, Rohini Hensman in our, during our main segment. And then his he kind of falls out of the spotlight at the end of the Cold War. Uh, you know, he's a college professor. His classes aren't very popular. He's not writing many articles for the nation. And then in 2008, Cohen makes an appearance on RT, Russia Today, where he criticizes U.S. missile defense plans. And then he goes back to RT again a few months later with some more criticism of Obama's policy on Russia. That's when he is awarded the Russia Order of Friendship from the Russian government and invited to come to Russia to receive this award from Sergei Lavrov. Who's the foreign minister. Rewarding him for being a friend of Russia because of his criticisms of uh, U.S. foreign policy toward Russia. And then in 2016, as the whole Trump-Russia stuff starts to dominate headlines, he suddenly begins this deluge of articles in The Nation magazine calling the Russia-Trump stuff a hoax, apologizing for Assad in Syria, and basically parodying the Kremlin line on everything. The Russia gate is just a manufactured that the hack of the Democratic National Committee was an inside job and all of this I, I think Duncan Campbell counted that you know once Trump was in office and until he Campbell finished his piece in 2020 Stephen Cohen had published 160 pieces in the nation. Okay so we're we're, we're talking really about a period of of, of four years and his his output in the nation rose to the point where one year it was 70 pieces in the nation well, well more than one one a week so it's probably in the print and it's probably a separate thing in the in the online and stuff these positions were unpopular with a lot of people at the nation and the article talks about how how that dissent was quashed within the magazine this was really an out there position not widely held on the American left, either radicals or liberals. They, they kept bringing in new people and crowding out or people left who you know, were contributors to the nation who wouldn't buy this Cohen-Putin line. Yeah. So, so the other part of the story that's important is Cohen's wife and the editor and owner of The Nation magazine, Katrina Vandenhovel. Yeah, and she's still the publisher of the nation. I mean, she she owns it. She's an heiress to Music Company of America money, big time. I, I you know, I always known she's independently wealthy. But independently wealthy just means you have enough money so that like you don't need to work. She has enough money to subsidize the one half million dollar per year operating loss of the nation. Every year, the Nation magazine loses at least a half million dollars and she covers every penny of that deficit year in year out so basically if she wants her husband to publish 70 pieces a year apologizing for putin then they're going to do that and doesn't matter what anyone else thinks right although the question is who is in charge of this operation? Is it Cohen using Vandenhovel? Is it Vandenhovel using Cohen? Is it Sergei Lavrov using both of them? Yeah. Here's sort of a, a thumbnail sketch of what investigative reporter Duncan Campbell believes. He wrote this to Kyle Pope in August of 22. Last year, when he said, okay, look, you know, Russia's invaded uh, all of, you know, Ukraine right now, published this piece finally. And in his 
letter or message, he says, at the last minute, you blocked a report for CJR that you commissioned and I wrote, and it was about the role of the Nation magazine in promoting the Russian imperialist agenda of Putin, promoting it within the United States, as orchestrated by the late Professor Stephen Cohen through the agency of his wife, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, owner and publisher of The Nation. So he's basically saying it's Russians' imperialist agenda. The campaign to promote that within the U.S. is orchestrated by Stephen Cohen. And he says a number of scholars have ex- explained this, Timothy Snyder and, and others. So the mastermind within the U.S. was Cohen, and he was working through his wife, Vandenhoeven. And look, this is similar to what we talked about two weeks ago when we talked about FBI agent Charles McGonigal, who's been indicted for various crimes, some of which involve collaborating with the Russians. The way Russian active measures work is that you don't always need to be bribed or blackmailed. Sometimes it's just finding uh, an American who has a certain ideological disposition and exploiting that disposition to advance Russian interest in the United States. And Stephen Cohen's case could have been just through flattery and the opportunity to advance his own career. I mean, this is where the term useful idiot applies. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, so we can't get into all the details of Duncan Campbell's piece. But uh, he goes into great detail, especially about this right-wing conspiracy theory that Stephen Cohen published in The Nation, claiming that the hacking of the DNC emails by Russia wasn't really hacked by Russia, claiming it was the, it was some sort of inside job by the Democrats, a completely baseless conspiracy theory. And even though they got a lot of criticism for it, they never retracted the article. It still sits on the nation's website. Um, and Stephen Cohen doubled down on it, saying that there was uh, no reason that it could be proven false, even though we have all the evidence from the Mueller report clearly laying out the case for why U.S. intelligence knows that it was the Russian government who hacked the DNC's emails. This whole push of Cohen within the nation begins, according to Duncan Campbell, five weeks before Election Day. Uh, Katrina Vanderhoevel brings Stephen Cohen to address a twice annual meeting of the editorial advisory board of the nation. And he starts to tell them that if you start to criticize the Trump Putin connections. This could trigger global nuclear annihilation. And he warns that we're closer to war than any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. He later says it's even worse than the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he derides the Democrats and the American media for demonizing Russian President Putin. You know, some people who had been involved with the nation, uh, Philip Green, who was a political theorist who had been on the board of the nation for 40 years, he eventually left. And the piece ends with him saying the following. So Philip Green is quoted as saying the following. The editorial position of the magazine, The Nation, appears to be that the only way to move toward nuclear arms reduction and peace is not to antagonize the kleptocratic thug in the Kremlin and not to distract the raging sociopath in the White House, you know, meaning Trump. This notion is so delusional as to be beneath serious discussion. It represents a turning away from a path of principle speaking, truth to power, to one of abject surrender to power. Well, we'll have to leave it at that, and we will link to both pieces, and we recommend people read them. Up next, our conversation with Rohini Hensman about her book, Indefensible. 
We are recording this interview on the 19th of February, 2023, and we're pleased to welcome back to the podcast Rohini Hensman. So welcome, Rohini. Thank you. Rohini Hensman is a writer, independent scholar, and activist working on women's rights, feminism, minority rights, and globalization. She has been published extensively on these issues, including her most recent book, Workers' Unions and Global Capitalism, Lessons from India. And Rohini, you're, you are based in India now, right? Yes, yes, I am. But you're originally from Sri Lanka? Sri Lanka, I am from Sri Lanka, yes. Regular listeners will know that we interviewed Rohini almost a year ago uh, discussing the war in Ukraine and the inability of some on the left to understand the real stakes in the battle. We discussed in that interview the phenomena of what you might call pseudo-anti-imperialism or fake anti-imperialism on the left, people that their entire sense of anti-imperialist politics is just to oppose what the West does and blinds them to the dangers of authoritarian movements and, and leaders outside of the West. And following up on that conversation, we thought it might be good to delve even deeper into a conversation with Rohini on this topic and talk about her book, Indefensible, Democracy, Counter-Revolution, and the Rhetoric of Anti-Imperialism, which came out in 2018. So, uh, Rohini, you wrote this book in 2018. What were your central motivations in writing the book? I started writing what later became indefensible because what was happening in Syria from, say, 2012 onwards was literally making me ill. I often use writing as a form of protest. For example, I wrote articles when Afghanistan and Iraq were bombed by the U.S. or Gaza was bombed by Israel. But I find writing alone is not enough. In the cases of Afghanistan, Iraq and Palestine, I also felt I was part of a community which was protesting against the bombing. I could participate in massive demonstrations and, and shout slogans along with others. In the case of Syria, there was no such collective protest against the slaughter taking place there. On the contrary, many people who had been part of the earlier protests were now parroting the propaganda of the killers. Trying to explain this shocking state of affairs is what led me to write a whole book rather than just an article about Syria, because I found that Syria was not the only case where self-professed anti-imperialists had become cheerleaders for tyranny and imperialism. When and how did this start? How did the rhetoric of anti-imperialism come to be used to support anti-democratic counter-revolutions around the world? What could we do about it? Uh, the book was an attempt to answer these questions. What is, what is the central argument that you make in Indefensible? I trace what I call pseudo-anti-imperialism back to Stalinism. The idea that the Stalinist state was a socialist or communist or worker state. This delusion entailed airbrushing its horrendous domestic repression including of workers, minimizing the massive betrayal of the Hitler-Stalin pact, which in my view made Stalin a Nazi collaborator for almost two years, and above all, ignoring the brutal imperialist oppression of peoples in the non-Russian republics of the USSR, amounting in some cases to genocide, as Raphael Lemkin pointed out. The delusion has affected not just members of Stalinist parties, but goes far beyond them to social democratic fellow travelers, and even some Trotskys. So I feel we owe a debt of gratitude to some Russian communists and Marxists outside Russia, like C.L.R. James and Raya Dunayevskaya, 
who very early on classified Stalinist Russia as state capitalist, which clarifies this point of what it was. But in a way, I can sympathize with those who resisted acknowledging the counter-revolution that had taken place, place because they were so emotionally invested in the revolution and Stalinist propaganda was so powerful. What I find more difficult to understand is the neo-Stalinists who repeat Putin's propaganda, despite his overt rejection of Lenin and desire to reverse the Russian revolution. So I classify pseudo-anti-imperialists into three groups one of which is these Stalinists and neo-Stalinists. The second consists of those for whom US imperialism and its allies are the only enemy in all situations. Even if they concede that other regimes are oppressive, this is immediately brushed under the carpet. They are unable to deal with complexities such as the idea that anti-imperialists may have more than one enemy. Therefore, they assume that if someone opposes, say, Russian imperialism, they must be supporters of US imperialism. In their own way, they believe in US exceptionalism, except that instead of seeing the US as exceptionally great and good, they see it as exceptionally evil and oppressive. This results in blatant double standards. If a Western power supports a dictator in a third world country in return for military bases and diamond and gold mining concessions, it is rightly classified as imperialist. If the Putin regime's Wagner group does exactly the same, it is not classified as imperialist. It results in selective solidarity with some victims and not others, depending on who is oppressing them. Palestinian civilians targeted by the Israeli state are deemed worthy of solidarity. But Syrian civilians targeted by the Syrian, Iranian or Russian state are not. For that matter, Palestinian civilians bombed and subjected to a starvation siege by the Syrian state and its allies in Yarmouk and other refugee camps, as described by Palestinian activist Budur Hassan, are not deemed to be worthy of solidarity. Brings us to the third group of pseudo-anti-imperialists, the tyrants and despots who cry imperialism if anyone from the West criticizes their crimes against humanity. In addition to Syria, I demonstrate the activities of these three groups in connection with the conflicts in Russia, Ukraine, Bosnia, Kosovo, Iran, and Iraq. My argument is that they promote imperialism, authoritarianism, and war, despite claiming to do the opposite. I conclude that despite talk of a new Cold War, what we are facing now is a global struggle between authoritarianism and democracy. It cuts across the former Iron Curtain and is being waged in each and every country. So it's not as though some countries are all on one side and some countries are all on the other. It comes in within every country and in some cases breaks out into open warfare. Our task as socialist internationalists is to support struggles for democracy and human rights wherever they occur in whatever way they can. So that's a sort of summary of my argument. At one point in your book, you say that we really need to reframe what we mean by right wing and left wing, because so many people on the left have associated, you know, the right wing with neoliberalism and the left wing with like state capitalism, basically. But if you recognize neoliberalism and state capitalism as just being different forms of capitalism, that, that can allow one to understand that, as you put it, quote, the key difference, therefore, is between democratic states that allow working people to fight 
back against the forces exploiting and oppressing them, and authoritarian states that block such struggles in multiple ways. And I thought that was a good framing of the issues at stake, because I think it's still the case that a lot of people on the left don't frame the issue that way. They're stuck in a outdated paradigm that really wasn't even an accurate paradigm in the first place. But even now, so it feels even more anachronistic and bizarre to have people still acting as if it's the Cold War and the U.S. is the ultimate enemy when there isn't even like the specter of fake communism, uh, state capitalist states to be defending, you know, in this sort of substitutionist, uh, Stalinist politics. That doesn't even exist anymore, but still people are falling into this paradigm. Anyway, but I thought that was refreshing to see you calling for people just to have a different frame about what the real issues are in on the international stage. That's correct. Yeah, that's part of my argument. Also, in, in terms of pushing back against this stuff, I'm reminded of a comment that I believe it was Irving Howe and maybe Louis Koser made, and this was maybe back in the 1960s or 1970s, and they were saying, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, you could argue with Stalinists because you had a similar frame of reference, you know, were the things that the Stalinist regime uh, was accused of doing, were they actually happening? Was this uh, a progressive social formation? You could have that argument, but... They said what we're looking at now, and I think they had monthly review in mind. I I, I don't exactly remember. What we have are apologists for Stalinism, and they cheerfully admit everything you say is is bad about that regime. So already, I think that there was a change in the nature of the defense of these kinds of regimes from a, a belief that they were actually progressive, moving the world forward in some way. And then now what you have is Putin outright right-wing reaction, anti-Lenin, anti-socialist, and you get folks being apologists defending all of this. So there's not a hint of progressivism there. So I think that's a further change in the nature of the mindset of a, of a lot of people telling them that Russia was, was state capitalist isn't going to do it and telling them that, that uh, Putin is a right winger and in cahoots with the Trumpism, that's not going to do it. I don't know what can be said to such people. Yeah, but I think even for them, somehow the idea that Russia today, grotesque as it is, uh, somehow derives or goes back to the Russian Revolution, somewhere in the back of their minds, that is still there, I think, in many of them. And they feel that they are defending the Russian Revolution. And they defend Putin, who says that the Russian Revolution was a disaster and wants to go back to Tsarism. Yeah, it is grotesque. So you you wrote this book, it was published uh, five years ago now, and a lot has happened since then. When this podcast episode airs, it's going to be more than a year into Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And you had your motivations and reasons for writing the book back then, but a lot's happened uh, since then. So what would you say is the relevance of the book at this point? It's still extremely relevant. Obviously, the the events could be updated, but the argument is absolutely the same. All the cases I looked at in that book are still suffering from oppression by non-Western imperialism and authoritarianism. Syria is still in the iron grip of Bashar al-Assad. Thousands of political prisoners are being tortured and killed there. Uh, The same in Iran. 
where the recent uprising led by women and girls is being crushed. Iran-affiliated militias and parties are also responsible for the mess in Iraq, the fact that they could, can't put together a government. It's being basically sabotaged by these Iran-affiliated groups. The last vestiges of democracy in Russia have been wiped out by, the, by this so-called special military operation in Ukraine, which involves genocidal bombing, raping, torture, killing, and abduction of civilians. Uh, Republika Srpska, which was carved out of almost half of Bosnia-Herzegovina, is threatening to break away with the support of Serbia and Russia. So this stuff is still going on there. And pseudo-anti-imperialists are still ignoring or justifying it all. So I think the arguments are still solid and relevant today. So Rohini, maybe you can help our listeners and us walk through some of the argumentation in your book. You get into a discussion of like theories of imperialism within the left and maybe the validity or relevance of some of those different theories and how those theories of imperialism relate to this problem of pseudo anti-imperialism. So one of the things you do is to look at Lenin's book on imperialism, which is kind of the classic text that a lot of people refer to on the left and was has been pretty influential. And you get at this issue of whether we're talking about imperialism as like like classical imperialism of like territorial conquest and the, like the subjugation of of foreign countries to like a imperial pole that versus the issue of foreign investment, uh, the export of capital into other countries. And you discuss some of the ways, you know, that these are like different notions of imperialism. Why is this whole discussion like important to your argument? What does this have to do with pseudo-anti-imperialism? Well, first, I think it's important to distinguish politically or military actions taken by a state to promote investments of its own capital in other countries for example, colonizing it or in other ways dominating it, from foreign investment by firms without any such support. Because if we conflate the two and call them both imperialism, the notion of imperialism becomes diluted to the point of absurdity. For example, you would have the advanced capitalist countries who invest in each other being seen as dominating each other. Or when India invests in Britain, India becomes imperialist power in Britain, etc. So that becomes absurd. In fact, as of now, many countries are today competing with each other for the second type of foreign investment. Of course, that creates different problems, which I dealt with in my previous book on workers' unions and global capitalism. But it's not, I wouldn't count that as imperialism. Now, I think that, of course, Lenin's pamphlet was written at a time when he couldn't really engage in much research, etc. And it was written in a hurry in the middle of the war. So it's not his fault, I think. But I do think it has been used. Imperialism, the highest state of capitalism, has been used for a rather confusing definition of imperialism. Lenin says, just to quote him, we must give a definition of imperialism that it will include the following five of its basic features. One, the concentration of production and capital has developed to such a high stage that it has created monopolies which play a decisive role in economic life. Two, the merging of bank capital and production capital, industrial capital, and the creation on the basis of this finance capital of a financial oligarchy. Three, the export of capital as distinguished from the export of commodities, 
acquires exceptional importance. For the formation of international monopolist capitalist associations, which share the world among themselves. And five, the territorial division of the whole world among the biggest capitalist powers is completed. Uh, that's the end of the quote. Now, I didn't attribute to him the opinion that a country that engages in foreign conquest and colonial subjugation is not imperialist if the interests of finance capital are not at stake. Uh, it was obvious to me from what he's written elsewhere that he regarded Britain, France, and Tsarist Russia as being imperialist powers long before the epoch of finance capital. Uh, rather, what I said was that in this particular pamphlet, he conflated two different phases of the capitalism. That is the classical phase of imperialism and this newer phase of uh, finance capital. And this has allowed pseudo-anti-imperialists to distort his consistent opposition to all forms of imperialism. So that was my argument about this. So for, for instance, um, I, I see this argument sometimes pop up on the pseudo-anti-imperialist left. They say things like, well, Russia isn't imperialist because it doesn't export capital. It Like, I'm, I'm going to quote you from a, here's a website called the Arkansas Worker. I don't know what party they're related to, but they say, quote, today, capitalist Russia's GDP is smaller than that of South Korea or India. Russia's economy is almost neo-colonial, dependent on the exchange of raw materials such as oil and ores. This is the classic economic relationship of a colony to imperial finance capital. So their argument is like, they just export raw materials. So they're really like in a colonial, neo-colonial relationship with, you know, international imperialist finance capital. And so we can't call Russia imperialist on that basis. This is the kind of argumentation that you are trying to form like a theoretical basis for critiquing with this distinction, right? Absolutely, yes. This idea that even though Russia is like clearly engaging in a colonial imperialist war of trying to bring more countries into the Russian sphere of political influence by militarily, people have this very specific definition of imperialism, and they use that to then claim that Russia can't be imperialist. Yeah, that's nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> so you can go, go around colonizing other countries, and that doesn't count as imperialism, because you're not exporting capital. In fact, in the classical phase of imperialism, many of these countries, like Britain, for example, were gaining more capital from their colonies than they were exporting to them. So, I mean, that's really not the definition of imperialism, uh, not a definition that would hold water. To be clear here, you're not saying that Lenin thought that imperialism requires this foreign investment, that that's a precondition for calling a country imperialist is that it exports capital or engages in foreign investment. You were saying that, if I understand you, you're saying that in, in his pamphlet, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, he just ran together two things which need to be unpacked. One is foreign domination, military conquest, and so forth. And the other is foreign investment. That's right. Yeah. That's that's yeah. what you're saying. 
That's right, yes. Right, okay. You, you agree that he doesn't actually believe that prior to this stage of monopoly capital, of finance capital, there was no imperialism. He didn't think that it like had emerged from nowhere just in the past couple of decades before he was writing. There was a thing called the Holy Roman Empire. That's the root of the word imperialism. So he was aware of that kind of thing. Absolutely, yes, yeah. Right. So putting words aside, if we say we've got most of the world who uses the term imperialism to refer to foreign conquest, colonial subjugation, and so forth, that's what most people have always meant by imperialism. And one is opposed to that or not. And then there are these folks who are opposed to foreign investment. Mm -hmm. So... In other words, they're just non-anti-imperialist in the normal sense. What they are is opposed to countries engaging in foreign investment. I mean, that, yes. that seems to me to like clear up a lot is just to forget this contested word imperialism and say, you're not opposed to foreign conquest and colonial domination. You're just opposed to foreign investment. Our issues are not foreign investment. Our issues are military conquest and, 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 and subjugating people. <laughs> Yes, yes, that's right, yes. So so the word imperialism is just, it's, it's a shared word, and it's holding back, it seems to me, recognition of the really profound difference between the, the two sides here. Completely, yes. I mean, they have nothing in common. In fact, as I was saying, in many, many countries are now competing for foreign investments. I mean, that creates other problems because then they, the governments of those countries try to lower labor standards, etc., in order to attract foreign capital. But that's not imperialism. It's not the foreign investors bringing their own state to try and force something on these countries. So it's got a different dynamic. And I think there are Marxists who have explored this difference. There are definitely and, and distinguished between them. It's, uh, they're certainly not the same thing. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayev. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. 
We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Well, another thing you touch on in your book, uh, along with your discussion of Lenin and imperialism, is Lenin's approach to national liberation movements and how Stalin really turned that whole question on its head. We actually, I think, covered some of this material a year ago, but it's I think it's worth re worth repeating because we're in the midst of this battle against parts of the left that don't recognize Ukraine's right to self-determination and collapse the entire issue of the war in Ukraine into a war between the West and Russia as if Ukrainian self-determination has no importance to the question at all. So maybe you can review for our listeners a little what, how did Lenin treat national liberation movements in his writing, and, and how did that change under Stalin? Yeah, well, I, I think early on, like, um, you know, in the 19th century and perhaps the turn of the century, uh, Lenin started out with very centralized conception of the revolution, you know, with seeing Russian Marxists as the center of the revolution, uh, like most other Russian Marxists, in fact. But he gradually changed his mind under the influence of Marxists from the colonies of Tsarist Russia, who basically were, some of them, had more developed Marxist parties than Russia did. They were arguing, among other things, that what they called national self-determination or what we would call independence or self-government, national liberation, was necessary in order for them to move towards socialism, democracy and then socialism. So he gradually changed his mind under their influence. I mean, after the revolution, he was associated with the development of local languages and cultures, which is a contrast with Tsarist Russia, which, you know, tried to russify everything except for treating them as sort of subcultures. And uh, there were treaties with some, like the Baltic states and Finland, which made them independent. And other states, like including Ukraine, became independent Soviet socialist republics. And Lenin wanted the Soviet Union to be a voluntary union of equal states. And that's why he insisted against many people, including Rosa Luxemburg, on a clause proclaiming the right to self-determination, including secession, in the Treaty on the Formation of the USSR. He made it clear that he supported national liberation in the former Tsarist colonies as much as he did in the Western colonies and vehemently condemned what he called Great Russian Chauvinism. 
So basically, he didn't want to have this double standard. Oh, we support national liberation in Western colonies. But of course, we don't want our colonies to be liberated from Russia or Russian imperialism. We want to keep them within our, within our domination. He was very much against that. But after Lenin died and Stalin came to power, he reversed most of Lenin's policies uh, on this front. The former colonies were russified once more and subjected to rule by Moscow. So the right to national liberation remained a dead letter and great Russian chauvinism ruled supreme. But funnily enough, Stalin did not remove that clause from the constitution of the USSR. Uh, because obviously he wanted to show himself as being the closest to Lenin. But basically in practice it meant nothing. But he left it in, which is what Putin criticizes him for. You know, in his uh, infamous speech uh, right before his invasion of Ukraine, Putin gave a very different interpretation of what Lenin was doing in supporting national self-determination. And if I remember, he basically chalked it up to Lenin just playing politics to try to suck up to what he called nationalists. Do you, do you have any comment on that? Well, he actually said that Lenin and the Bolsheviks created Ukraine as though it had not existed before the revolution, which of course is nonsense historically. You know, to recognize that a state has the right to existence doesn't mean that you create it. Basically, it shows that he, he didn't accept the right of it to exist at all. He thought it was Lenin's fault that it existed at all. And he's basically saying that he does not want it to exist. Yeah. Right. And he's basically also, I, I took it to, to be rewriting not only of the history of Ukraine, but rewriting the history of socialist internationalism. You know, Lenin was not the first to have this position of national self-determination. It was a standard position for a very long time, at least in principle. But Putin was making it like, oh, it was just sort of like some bizarre tactical move for tactical purposes on, on Lenin's part to suck up to nationalists and really had nothing to do with the goals of the, the Russian Revolution or anything like that. Well, of course, the, the argument goes back to Marx and Engels. It's not nothing new. And if you read what Lenin said and did on the subject, you can see it's not something tactical at all. He feels very deeply that this great Russian chauvinism, which actually I had earlier equated with white supremacism. It's something like white supremacism. He hated it. And he, he noticed the, the racist epithets with which the non-Russian, non-ethnic Russian uh, citizens of the USSR were being demonized. And he absolutely distanced himself from that. It was clearly not something tactical. It's something he felt very deeply. And it goes back. It certainly goes back to early, to early Marxist internationalism. Right, in including the um, the likening of it to white supremacism. There's that circular letter or whatever of Marx with reference to Ireland, which was a, a yes. country subjugated and still kind of subjugated by England. And he says the attitude of your ordinary English worker to the Irish workers, you know, who had migrated to, to London and, and, and elsewhere, Manchester says their attitude is just like the poor whites who look down on black people in the U.S. South. That was clear to him circa 1870 or so. 
Yes, exactly. This uh, colonial attitude to, yeah, to colonies, even if they happen to be white colonies, which was rejected by Marx and Engels and, and certainly rejected by Lenin too. So this kind of gets us into the question of like how Stalin's relationship to, to Russia's colonies, the Soviet Union's colonies, if you want to call them that, how, how that proceeded. I mean, this was a, Soviet imperialism was a brutal thing. I mean, going every you know, starting with like the, the Great Famine, the, which was a man-made famine in Ukraine in the early 30s, where it killed millions of people, to like the endless war in Afghanistan toward the end of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had a really brutal, violent, imperialist legacy and had a, a huge body count uh, attached to it. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how, you're, how, how you character Soviet imperialism, what its purpose was and, and how it functioned? Yes, and um, I'm just thinking when you said that, that when we say Soviet imperialism, we need to distinguish between Russia and, you know, the former colonies, because as you said, it was Stalin who imposed the Holodomor on uh, Ukraine, for example, starved all those peasants, um, wiped them out, wiped out the intelligentsia and so on. So uh, it was Russian imperialism in the Soviet Union which treated these former Tsarist colonies, basically directly subjugated them and uh, took a, yes, as you said, a very barbaric genocidal form in some cases, ethnically cleansing these colonies of their original inhabitants. Some of the other Muslim areas as well, Muslim colonies were, the same thing was done, trying to wipe out their culture encouraging settler colonialism, etc. On the other hand, there were the countries of Eastern Europe which were brought in to the Russian orbit after the Alta Conference. And that was slightly different because there they installed what were basically puppet regimes controlled by Moscow. Of course, that Moscow remained very much in the picture. If there was any sign of rebellion against these regimes, as in Hungary, Czechoslovakia and Poland, Russian tanks moved in to re-establish the status quo. And then Afghanistan, of course, is a is the last of the attempted colonizations, and it was extremely brutal again. Over a million uh, civilians slaughtered, maybe many more. So that is a horrendous legacy, which is often not acknowledged, even, you know, even by critics of Stalinism. The scale of that is not acknowledged very often. Now, what drove it all? I think there were certainly economic benefits to Russia in terms of access to raw materials, food, labor, in some cases, slave labor. And then in the case of the more industrialized countries like East Germany, they looted machinery too. So all this fed into the dream to catch up with and surpass the West economically. But exerting imperial power, political power over the other countries was also a motive even when it might result in economic losses. For example, the, the incursion into Afghanistan was pretty bad for the USSR in terms of its economic impact, but they still went ahead with it. And of course, this was all justified in the name of socialism in one country, namely the Soviet Union, which was supposed to be one country and socialist and had to be defended and promoted, even at the cost of betraying the working classes of other countries. 
Of course, this is completely contrary to Marxism. We can't accept socialism in one country. It's a contradiction of the basic principle of socialist internationalism, which sees a socialist society as emerging out of a world revolution. But that was the, the sort of rationale given for what Russia and the Soviet Union were doing. The logic being that since Russia was supposedly a socialist country, that basically any actions they did in the international stage, uh, whether they were like brutally imperialist or violent, destructive, whatever, they were justified because they were necessary to protect the gains of the revolution. Um, so through the substitutionist logic where the party was substituted for the people and the goals of socialism were substituted for the Russian state. You could pretty much justify anything. And nothing is off the table. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, well, the interests of the international proletariat come first. So crushing the international proletariat is, is how you save them. Yes. Yes, it's reminiscent of Vietnam. No, I find just, you know, you have some good summaries in the book of, of some of these brutal disasters imposed by Soviet imperialism. And I find those are really good to be reminded of because they really aren't as talked about a lot, especially, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but even in the U.S., where I grew up in the Cold War and there was lots of anti-Soviet propaganda, a lot of the time I don't think I really learned my history of like Soviet imperialism very well. And especially on the left, everything you read is just talking about all the bad things that U.S. imperialism did in the 20th century. So the Holodomor, the Great Famine, the, you know, all these different misadventures of the Soviet Union on the, the world stage are not things that, that a lot of people learn about. It's like kind of a, an under-discussed yes. part of the 20th century history, uh, which is crazy because, I mean, we're talking about a, a huge part of the world that was, was wrapped up into this imperialist insanity. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And I, I, I mean, I also have to admit that although I obviously saw the East European bloc, the Warsaw Pact bloc, as being colonized or dominated by Russia, I tended to think of the Soviet Union as, you know, all one country. And uh, it was only much later on that I started thinking of, yeah, if the 1990s and so on that I thought started thinking of them as as colonies you know and then going back and looking at everything and finding out much more of the kind of barbarism that was inflicted on some of them naturally they wanted to be independent so Rini some of the pseudo anti-imperialists that you criticize in your book uh, did not take too kindly uh, to the <laughs> criticism they were actually frothing in the mouth with rage as I, I read it. For instance, there's the World Socialist website, which you call out very early in the book, uh, that's associated with the Heliite organization uh, in the United States. On the, their website, they charged that, quote, indefensible, your book, is a full-throated endorsement of imperialist war. And they said that you engage in grotesque propaganda and that the, quote, bulk of indefensible consists of vitriolic attacks on left-wing and socialist opponents of war. And they weren't the only ones. Kevin Zeese, who has since passed away, he was a U.S. Green Party activist. And in the review of your book, he wrote that, quote, indefensible is a defense of U.S. militarism, the never-ending wars and global chaos created by the United States since 9-11. And he also said that the book is, quote, an attack on people who oppose U.S. imperialism. 
I don't have any question here. I would just like to give you a chance to respond. Right now, I think there's a difference between these two responses. If you remember the classification, the threefold classification of uh, pseudo-anti-imperialists I went into earlier, Kevin Reese's rejoinder seems to be a case of inability to deal with complexity. He assumes that anyone who supports struggles against an autocracy or imperialist regime other than the U.S. and its allies must be a supporter of U.S. imperialism and militarism. He asserts that I justify every U.S. war when the book makes it clear that I have opposed U.S. wars on Vietnam, Afghanistan and Iraq, among others. But it seems to me his mind simply can't grasp the possibility of opposing U.S. as well as other imperialisms. I, the World Socialist website pieces are actually a vivid demonstration of everything I write in my book. To begin with, the twisting of facts. Anyone who reads the book would know that calling it a full-throated endorsement of imperialist war is an outright lie. I spend a significant portion of it condemning U.S. imperial wars. Of course, the bulk of it is not that because I've written about that elsewhere. The bulk of it is written for those who already condemn U.S. imperial wars, but want to know more about other imperial wars. They claim that I present not a shred of evidence for mass uprising in Sy uprisings in Syria, whereas I present copious evidence from Syrian witnesses and analysts, including Marxists and anarchists. Yes, there are such people in Syria which they don't seem to know. They also spread lies about me. I don't understand why. I'm not quite sure. For example, they say I have ties to the Communist Party of India and have a Sri Lankan Maoist background. Now, as it happens, I have a friend who was once in the CPI, the Communist Party of India, who left it a long time before I met him and who is now strongly anti-Stalinist. Does this mean I have ties to the CPI? I don't think so. Neither I nor anyone in my family has ever been a member of a Maoist group or party. So I'm guessing the idea is to smear me as a Stalinist. Anyway, let's forget about all that. The lies about the book and about me, they pale into insignificance compared to the racist abuse, I call it racist, with which Syrians are treated. According to them, that's the WSWS, Syrians are incapable of fighting for freedom and democracy. They have no agency. And all those who oppose Bashar al-Assad are either fools manipulated by Washington as well as probably being Islamist militants who killed thousands of themselves and their own children with poison gas, since, of course, Assad would never do such a thing. And much more along the same lines. I mean, I can't go into all this. It, it's uh, too sickening. But it all sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's almost word for word an echo of Syrian and Russian government propaganda. Every single thing they say. They say it is the task of the Syrian working class to overthrow Assad. But they quote not a single Syrian worker, only Western apologists for Assad. Their whitewashing of Stalin and Putin runs through their four-part article and includes the statement that, quote, Hensman's insinuation that the Soviet Union collaborated with Nazi Germany is a reactionary historical lie, close quote. And this is despite solid evidence of the Hitler-Stalin pact and its secret protocols as well as the expulsion of communists from the Soviet Union to Nazi Germany by Stalin. That's communists who had, who had come to Russia because they were fleeing Nazism, were sent back by Stalin. 
So they clearly, these people, the WSWS, in my view, they clearly fall into the category of neo-Stalinists, despite their claim to be Trotsky's. And I think this is confirmed by their recent write-up of the Ukrainian war, where again, they completely dismiss the Ukrainians. They don't see them at all. And they see it as a war which is started by NATO. And Putin is forced to respond to them. Imagine, Putin is forced to to murder all these Ukrainian civilians, children, including children. It's terrible. You know, you talk about the racism of this, and it reminded me of something, and this just goes to show this stuff is not new. It's very, very entrenched. Here in the U.S., there's a one of these groups, another group that calls itself Trotskyist, the Spartacist League. But they were very rabid supporters of Back when there was the USSR, their invasion of and war, you know, in Afghanistan, their newspaper was called Workers Vanguard and it had a very famous cover with a Russian soldier on the front and the title was Hail Red Army. I, I don't know, I was reading this maybe 1979, 1980, something like that. And something in it that I'll always remember, I can never forget this, just blanket statement in their newspaper that Afghanistan and elsewhere in the third world, these countries are too poor to be governed democratically. Mm. Yes, exactly. We're all too poor and too backward and we can't do things for ourselves. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, anyway, this, this stuff goes way, way, way back. These attitudes are really reactionary, but they're, they're deep set. It's, it, it's, it's like nothing ever changes. There's got to be something in in the objective situation that, that, that keeps reproducing this kind of outlook. And I, I, I just don't know what it is. Yeah, I mean, the people of former colonies, whether it's in Eastern Europe or in Asia or Africa, I mean, again, you see so much uh, activity of this Wagner group in, in, in Africa, which is out and out imperialist. But somehow it's not seen as such that people may actually want democracy, may fight for it. Syria, no, they're too backward. Libya, no, they're too backward. Ukraine, no, they're too backward, etc., etc. I think it is racist. And uh, yes, it does go back and it remains still today quite sad that you find it on the left. Of course, on the right, you expect it. That you find it on the left, that's appalling. Well, Farhini, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us again this has been a great conversation. Thank you for interviewing me. <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure to link to your book. And I hope that people uh, check it out. It's a great read. Theoretical stuff about anti-imperialism and imperialism is up front. And then there are a bunch of case studies talking about Syria, Iraq, Iran, Bosnia and Kosovo, other little case studies of the relationship of the left and anti-imperialist to these uh, different recent you know, events. So um, people should definitely check it out. It's chock full of very detailed, careful, patient, factual research. It debunks a lot of things. You know, we've mostly been talking more generally and about theory and so forth, but it's a very valuable resource. If you hear something, read something, go check out what Indefensible says about the, the actual facts of the matter. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about 
these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 